Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with one of my favourite people on the planet. It's ex-God Forbid and current Bad Wolves Axeman, Doc Coyle. Now, Bad Wolves are God Forbid weren't necessarily on Roadrunner Records in any way, but Doc certainly was adjacent to all those Roadrunner bands that came out in the early 2000s, maybe even late 90s if you want to stretch back that far. And I think he has a really unique perspective on that scene, especially what we then refer to as the metalcore scene with the likes of Killswitch Engage and Trivium and all that great stuff um he's a really well-spoken articulate and all-around awesome dude and I'd, I'd employ you to check out bad wolves um i'd employ you to check out his other two podcasts the pit and the x-man podcast we do talk a bit of bad wolves again uh towards the end especially as if you're listening to this as it comes out bad wolves have received some good news recently and everything seems to be moving forward as we exit the whole pandemic era of the music industry anyway i hope you enjoy this one one, two, fuck shit up. Like how that label did what it did. And the reason like, I picked yourself was because, well, first of all, I'll, I'll go into this, like, because we, we've met years ago, and I'll tell you this story because it's quite interesting. That's interesting to me. But your position with, like, God forbid, and some of the guys that you've interviewed when you come across Roadrunner, it feels it feels like as a listener that you understand that as a vehicle it was a little bit different than the rest of the uh enterprises in the industry is that does, does that sound ring true or am i reading the wrong things i mean i think you might even be treating it a little more euphemistically it's i mean we were we always felt at a disadvantage um and touring with Roadrunner bands, especially in Europe, because our, you know, after outside of like maybe one, one or two tours, every other tour we did was with a Roadrunner band. Machine yeah. Head, Kill Switch, uh, Chimera, Caliban, El Nino, Devil Driver. And you would see that bands that in the US, maybe you feel like you'd have a little bit of a fighting shot. You know, a, a label like Central Media just did not have that ability and especially in 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 the uk and, and me being that i was in a band and really ambitious but also kind of like a culture vulture like i was someone who just would read the magazines and see i would always like want to know what was going on and try and i'm always trying to like decode right how do you break a band how does this band do this how does this band do that and you know we were just kind of i mean maybe jealous is is it's maybe too strong of a word, but but definitely envious of that machine and that brand and 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 the power it 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 had. Where you would have bands that literally like did nothing in America, or or maybe I'm I don't want to you know shit on anyone, but like that were like the workhorse movement. That I mean, it seemed like they came and went, and but they were like headlining in the UK almost immediately, and you're like, how is that? Or like. Killswitch Engage, it was like the Road Rage short, Killswitch 5.0, 36 Crazy Fists. Mm-hmm. And Killswitch had never even done a headline tour in America that was anything worth talking about. And they went immediately and sold out every show. And I'm like, how is that? It almost seemed like magic. Yeah. I, it, the UK is especially poignant in terms of its relationship with Roadrunner Axe. And I'm trying to figure that out. It's, I, I don't know. It's Michelle Kerr, isn't it? It'll be something to do with her, no doubt. Well, it's, it's that, but there's, you know, I think there's... For some reason, there was a kind of faith, tr- trust, agreement, or 
kind of consolidation between the fan base and the media there that was very cyclical where they kind of where they trusted if Kerrang or Metal Hammer said you got to pay attention to this band that fan base kind of like took their word for it um and so and whether you know and that's just the ability to kind of magnetize hype in this really consolidated way and keep in mind it's it's in the grand scheme it's a small country so you things can happen quickly uh and you know you saw that probably no better with trivium with that kerrang cover where it's like black sabbath iron maiden metallica trivium and it's like you just gave that band a basically a, a career forever in that country with that one cover and listen i doesn't mean they didn't back it up oh uh, are they as big as Metallica and Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath? No. So there's hyperbole there. But uh, are they a force to be reckoned with uh, to this day? Of course. This, this leads me into my story and my first formal question. So 2006, you, you, you supported Trivium on their second headlining UK tour. I know there was another ascendancy run. Now, the day before the first date in Leeds, there was a meet and greet at Bradford Rio's. And it yeah. was, I don't think the band knew it was a meet and greet. I don't think you guys knew it was a meet and greet, but soundcheck was happening. And then a bunch of kids start filing through the door. And I was one of them kids. Um, and I met you guys. I met, I, was, I, was, I sung on stage with Trivium singing like Master Boots and Trooper because they were just, it, it got to the point where when they realized what was going on, it was like, all right, the stakes are a bit lower now. Everyone's just having a bit of a party. And because um, I wasn't aware that God forbid was supporting, I hadn't heard of God forbid. Um, but that was my first experience with you guys. And it was interesting because I kept offering to buy drinks and stuff. And Byron was like, the shit is too sweet. I don't want it. <laughs> but I went out and bought a constitution and then something occurred to me and I did, I, I looked at the back and I couldn't see a little red logo. And that's what something in my head went, all oh, right. So because not being a naive 16 year old, I was like, oh shit. Um, the Roadrunner must be responsible for this kind of, this sort of, what we now call metalcore, what was then maybe known as post-hardcore, or maybe even now new wave of American heavy metal, or what, however you want to classify it. That was kind of, listen, I, I think there's some nitpicking between those those two things. I mean, new wave of American heavy metal, I think, describes a certain group of bands from a certain era mm -hmm. uh, pretty well. And then on the fringe of that, there's some crossover between metalcore and kind of bands that can kind of, subsist within both sub subgenres. I think it's like we have to wait another five years for those boundaries to calcify. But you know what I mean? Like for me, Roadrunner was like, and in hindsight and now having read around it, it's like the Mike Gitter impact. That it was shocking to me to see, to find that Godford weren't on, on Roadrunner. And that's what I mean. We think, all oh, right, there's a certain thing here. It's not entirely uh, on purpose. There are, there's nuances in the way that bands administrate themselves. And there's nuances in the ways that labels take on bands and things like that and that's what made me think all right roadrunner is an entity among other entities you know what i mean it, it was like it wasn't just all or nothing but my the question is like when did you realize that roadrunner was a thing i mean the word here is brand when did you realize that roadrunner was a brand because i'm thinking like god forbid from what 96 97 in new I jersey just, in yeah, that time did then but yeah 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 it did in that time, though, in New Jersey, Roadrunner, that was like the golden era, wasn't it? Typo had just gone gold and everything was happening. So did, I might, my question is, like, when did you realize that Roadrunner was a thing? 
Uh, really, my introduction. I mean, I listen. I got burn my eyes probably in ninety four ninety five because a um, guy at a comic book store. You know, we were talking about metal and stuff, and he's like, "Oh, you got to check out this record." It was like when I was first getting into metal, so it was like Metallica and Megadeth, and I got I remember I picked it up. I was like, "Man, this album cover is great." Put it on, it was like too heavy for me and my brother. We we're like, "Yo, we had like put it on the shelf for a year before we could acclimate uh, to it." Um, but you know, and uh, Sepultura was a was a big thing uh, for for myself when I was really young, first getting into metal. But really, it was uh, there was a radio station in New Jersey called Seton Hall uh, 89.5 Pirate Radio. And it was, and they would just play kind of a wide expanse of, of heavy music. I mean, really everything from punk to death metal to black metal to hardcore uh, and super mainstream stuff, right? They would play Disturbed and Linkin Park and, and everything in, in between. But you started to kind of see like a through line sonically and a certain like, like, their like their band sang right like there was there was almost seemed to be like a vocal style style that was consistent between a fear factory and a life of agony mm. if that makes sense there was something like uh and you you just knew that there was something a little more mainstream a little more accessible than the types of bands that would be on nuclear blast or century media and even it's funny because there was a dj over there named tom rock who, you know, when God forbid made our first album, he was like, why don't you guys send this to Roadrunner? And I and I remember this is right when Slipknot's first album was coming out. And I was just like, of the mind, I'm like, we do something that's just too crazy for that. Like, I just assumed they would not be interested and in why we thought Central Media was a better label for us because we were like, we're too, like, you know, our first album, Reject Sickness, it's like the songs are pretty, you know, there's 20 riffs in one song and it's, mm. it, you know, we were just we we always saw ourselves as a much more extreme outfit, and of course, that's you know not taking the context of understanding that death metal, a lot of death metal started there. You know, whether it's death or obituary or deicide, um, go down the you know kind of go down the the, the list there. Um, but at that point, it's I it seemed like Roadrunner had kind of was not really that kind of label. Yeah, it's it that time especially is when they were trying to diversify a lot more and you had the door open for bands like the Americana stuff like Blue Mountain and Nickelback was just around the corner. Yeah. I'm interested in what you said earlier in terms of when you were touring with the Roadrunner bands, you felt a bit on the back foot. Can we elaborate a bit on that? And it's not to, it's not to shit on Century Media, it's to understand yeah. possibly, is, it an, is that an infrastructure comment? Like, because Roadrunner, I was like, who was I speaking to about this? Shit, I can't remember. They're going to kill me for it. Anyway, um, when the when a band would sign to Roadrunner, the deal wasn't always too favorable. It was always a few grand advance. Um, but the the point that was made was, but you got to think about it. They've got offices in every country, so it's five grand advance, but it's five hundred thousand five hundred thousand dollars infrastructure worldwide. That's a different kind of investor on a different level. So. Is that, is that kind of where you where you were thinking in terms of me on the back foot? Listen, I think the idea of any kind of brand, right, yeah. is this idea of a reliable uh, type of quality. And to me, when you know, it just seemed like you had to be of a certain level, or you had to have something 
that was, you know, trailblazing. You know, like, I mean, I, I feel like you look at a lot of those records and it always seemed, it was like, man, this this album is a, you know, it's like Burn My Eyes is a classic game-changing album. Demanufacture is a classic game-changing album. The first mm-hmm. Slipknot album, uh, Kill Switch, uh, Live or Just Breathing. Like, these were paradigm-shifting records that you could understand the, the music world before it and after it mm-hmm. and that so that really spoke to the a and r's uh taste like they had a taste that seemed to be very particular and ahead of the curve and say yeah. hey we're going to set the trend we're not going to follow the trend and uh and so i i think when you can do that and then you have this really dedicated uh you know, staff that's global and understands kind of what, um, you know, the, uh, the the mission statement is, and then it's executed, and then you fans kind of come to understand, hey, when this be- when this label puts something out, I know it's going to cater to the things I want. And like I said, having something like the Kill Switch thing, uh, and then Trivium after it was like, oh, remember it was like new metal and it's Slipknot and it's Cold Chamber. Like, no, 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 here's the new thing. And they're mm-hmm. telling you what's the new thing before it is even the new thing. And then they set, and that becomes the next 10 years of heavy music, but they were ahead of the curve or even something like Glassjaw, which um, I, is one of my favorite bands. They were so ahead of the curve. It didn't even, that scene didn't even pop until like their second record. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that was something that was always impressive of just being ahead of the curve. And, and, and obviously, the, you know, the way it was, it, it wasn't something that was able to last, uh, whether that's through just selling, selling the label and kind of dissolving the, the staff and, and stuff like that. Or just maybe there's also changes in the culture and the way we consume music and kind of the way we hold brands in general, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. know if kids care as much today about what label a record is on as yeah. they did and maybe that's just because of the phys- the opera the way we consume it through physical forms is is just completely different yeah i mean i think one thing for me and i'm trying to put my mind back to when i was a kid i think and this i'll speak to your conversation with ro i think the street team element of it was also speaks to the physicality of a record as well. And I think that really helped the brand because you, you couldn't, if you, if you didn't associate bands with brand just by virtue of picking up the record and just listening and listening, you certainly did when you left a venue and some kid put a road a promo into your hand. Whereas now it's the saturation. Well, we're, we're in the middle of like the age of saturation. And I think it's on the industry to innovate on that and, help people pick lanes which they're trying to do but uh the jury's still out on, on, on if we can recapture that brand association and have that similar kind of uh beat now i'm going to defer to your experience on this one doc as, a, as like a seasoned music professional whereas i'm just some schlub who is playing journalist was there any other any other label that did anything similar like was there anyone else that kind of really tried to get their claws ahead of the curve I mean, we could argue like Metal Blade in, in the early 80s. We could even argue in some like emerging scenes like Mausoleum um, in Belgium and, and things like that. But I, when I rack my brain, I can't think of anything that was quite as cutting as Roadrunner. Well, I, I think you have to look at it uh, based on genre. I mean, I think Victory Records had a, as a reliable 
kind of brand association with hardcore and eventually mm-hmm. like metalcore and emo uh, a little bit into like the late 90s, early early 2000s. That was distinct and and that same thing, really, uh, you know, just powerful marketing uh, team and they, they really understood their audience. Epitaph uh, with kind of more on the punk side, yeah. I think to this day, just kind of, if you have, especially you have bands that, because it started out as a punk label, but then they'll work with bands like uh, Every Time I Die or Bring Me the Horizon. And it, it kind of like, it shifts like the way you kind of view certain certain bands. Is Bring Me the Horizon there? I hope I didn't, was, am I thinking of- I think it, I mean, I think okay, it is. I, yeah, sorry, I, I, I have a computer in front of me. I'm not gonna Google it. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, but that's a label that it has a cachet, but just of a, dealing with a different subculture um you know and i think even labels like Century media nuclear blast and metal blade for just any heavy band and, and part of the reason why god forbid was really attracted to Century media was because of the diversity of the label that they would have a nevermore and a stuck mojo and a marauder uh and iced earth and turmoil and they would really, and so because we felt like this oddball band that meshed genres together. Um, and the thing about, and I think it's still a factor, but less a factor is that signing with any label of a certain magnitude just gives you credibility. And and it's just the difference between being a local band and a quote unquote national act. And so, trust me, being on Century Media and and, and to kind of I you know. I don't want to use the comparison as a way to kind of undersell the fact that I think in, you know, Central Media did a lot of great things for God forbid mm. and invested a lot in, in the band, especially uh, on our gone forever and, and constitution of treason albums for us, where we felt uh, the, the inability to kind of expand out of that was in the mainland European territories where it seemed like roadrunner bands just kind of got an automatic approval and we would just grind we would go on every album or two times an album we go to europe and we're just like people just either they don't know us or maybe they don't get it or maybe we're not being uh promoted properly and you know i, I remember on our century media debut determination they changed the album artwork and put like a bunch of skulls and stuff on it because they're like because they didn't get it there wasn't people don't really understand in 2001 there wasn't a new wave American heavy metal scene. There wasn't a metal core scene. So when they listen to something like us, they're like, well, it's not really thrash metal. It's not really death metal. It's not really hardcore. Yeah, and they just yeah. didn't understand it. So they're like, well, we just got to put some skulls on it and hopefully metal people, generic metal people will, will buy it. Uh, and that kind of spoke to some difference in the kind of translation of what we were doing. And, you know, and, and also it's the downside of being ahead of the curve. Is when you're early, you kind of have the one to take the lumps, and then a band like Trivium can come out and kind of you know they get to kind of stand a little bit on the shoulders of the us and Shadows Fall and bands like that that kind of kind of set the table, and then kids yeah. like you come along, you're 16 and you don't know any better, you just hear Trivium like it's the greatest band in the world, and but that's how it always is. It's you know you take a band like Glassjaw and they never got as big as a band like the used right mm-hmm. who is a little more commercial a little more palatable 
And maybe they don't even know that they'll just kind of, and, but that's just how it is. It's, it's, uh, it's always tough to be a little too early. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned like how people can, well, how, when you are the cutting edge, you've got to take the burden of compartmentalizing the music and then trying to, I guess, brand it as something. Cause one thing that my mate says, it was a hot take was a funeral for a friend. I don't know if you're familiar with that band from Wales. They're sort of dubbed as like emo post hardcore, but those first two albums sound probably more like Killswitch than anything emo post hardcore. But they're called an emo post hardcore band, and that's just the thing they've been lumped with because they were the cutting edge of the time, and there was no way we knew there'd be this thing called metalcore, new wave American metal, or whatever it was going to be. So it's you know this it's the casualties of innovation, I guess, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's, listen, as long as you can survive and kind of. Sometimes subgenres can be a bit of a noose as well, and you get stuck tied to one kind of thing that, and people keep moving, right? It's like the thing that was cool becomes uncool, and then you and then you seem like a dinosaur, and you're always just trying to kind of survive and and thrive, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. So when um when the one acquisition completed, well, I say completed when it's referred to as the red wedding in some circles, for yeah. obvious reasons. What was your initial thoughts on that? Because I know at the time it was, there was, people just thought it was the end of fucking days, didn't they? I mean, A, I mean, the first thing is just my heart went out to dedicated uh, people who had a career that were out of the job. That's the first thing I, I go to because these are people that held some of these positions for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And like I said, even though I was not a Roadrunner, band because we had toured with so much roadrunner bands i lived in new jersey so i was in new york all the time uh socializing with uh many people worked in the in the new york office they were friends of mine uh and it just you know it was it i personally i just didn't get it because what people don't really understand is that there's not a lot of money to be made working in the music industry on the metal side of it unless you own a label or maybe just some huge like booking agent and you're just making a ton of money most people do it because they love it and they want to be there and with roadrunner people drank the kool-aid they loved these bands they they really like they really understood they were part of something special and the bands understood that and that stuff that goes it's it's a dedication and so it was just sad because it seemed like the industry all of a sudden didn't value that. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it, and said, Oh no, we're just going to plug it into this machine. And listen, there are still several bands that have uh, still exist in, you know, Slipknot, Trivium, Opeth, Gojira, uh, Code Orange. Now, you know, they've mm-hmm. signed really great new, newer bands as well. So it's not like the brand is gone or dead. Uh, and I don't really, I just, from what I understand, maybe you can oh, film, film this in. It's just Warner basically took over all of those operations. Is that what happened? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting saga, to be honest, Doc. So I'll give you my narrative on it and my research. So it starts with Biohazard. So Biohazard throw out um, Urban Discipline in 92. And that was actually, that was an arrangement from Warner. So Warner said, we want street credibility with this you know new york right it's effectively like a hardcore rooted act we should get roadrunner to put this out and then we'll just take him after that mm. and apparently the case at, at 
Roadrunner hated the idea because he didn't want to invest the artist development and the resources into a band that he knew by design was going to go off to Warner. But the idea was that's where the lust was, is the street, this really credible street, low-level brand, Roadrunner. And Leo Cohen was the man in the chair at that point who understood Roadrunner, understood Case, and went, this is a great label, this is a great metal outfit. And that carried all the way through to when Leo worked at Universal, where the first acquisition happens for Universal from Universal in 2001. And that was, I think it was like 50% they bought, but with Case holding the card still. And then what happens, Leo moves over to Warner in 2006 and then starts buying the rest of it. So it, it, Was it like a hostile takeover? Or is it all kind of... It wasn't, it wasn't hostile until... 2012 as a, uh, 2010 i think is the year so i think and i might be getting my, my dates wrong so apologies anyone who's listening because a lot of roadrunner colleagues listen to this and then call me out when i get my shit wrong which is totally acceptable um i think that it ticks over to 51 percent one is taking 51 percent in 2006 from universal right so <laughs> so Roadrunner half owned by Universal in 2001 up until 2006 at which point Warner buy the Universal bit and a few percent more yeah they stay away for free for a few years and then at 2000 in 2010 you start seeing different things happening there's the loud and proud imprint which is coming in which is uh, like a collaboration label-ish it's like it's like it's like an imprint which is dealing with legacy acts so this is like Leonard Skinner releasing an album on it I believe Lenny Kravitz did so there was a Sammy Hagar record. Um, and then you start seeing a few of the sackings. Then the paychecks are coming in from Warner or not Roadrunner. And it's gradual. And then the Red Wedding is, I think it was April 2012, where it's like Monty's gone, Mark Abramson gone, Kathy Merritt gone. Everyone is just gone. So it is, it's not necessarily hostile until that point. It was quite a cumulative effect. But in my head, it starts with Biohazard. It starts with that little flicker in Leo Cohen's eyes. It was like, ah, oh, this is a really cool brand. And this, you know, this is it's where he starts his affair with it. I'm not blaming the guy. At the end of the day, Kathy Mary said it the best. Like, they were walking in a garden. They picked the, the most beautiful flower. That's what it is, really. But yeah, that's how I understand it. But, I mean, and listen, we don't... Uh, sometimes people look at the record industry and look and kind of, I think they mischaracterize it as something that it's been here forever. The record industry is like 70 years old. Okay. So let's not act like these, you know, so sometimes we take things that were only really ever meant to be temporary and think that there were things that were going to last forever, but that was never going to be the case. And so, uh, you know, I think that the key with, maintaining that brand right and this happens at any time you have uh you know like like apple for example right when steve jobs dies how do they you know, he was the tastemaker right he was the one that was kind of guiding can you keep that going right can you bring in new a and r people that can kind of give that roadrunner seal of approval that means means something and i think it's you know in the, in the past 10 years i think it's been kind of hit or miss when it comes to signing new acts i mm-hmm. mean when's the last new band that they signed that's become like taken over the world that doesn't mean they haven't signed good bands i don't want to that's i definitely don't want to they all every project of the time like man these are really cool bands but are they the next big thing in terms of changing 
the, the, the landscape of music or getting to, you know, getting what's the, the last band to get to a trivium height or a slipknot height. Uh, not that that's easy to do, but that you have to realize that it had a lot to do with the personnel and their particular taste. Um, and listen, and every, every A&R guy eventually or gal eventually loses their fastball, right? Not everyone's not able to do it. Maybe, you know, the Clive, there's a Clive Davis out there or someone like that, that can kind of has that, um, <clears throat> that ability uh, well into their, their seventies and eighties, but it's rare. So, but listen, I, it still exists. So that's cool. Yeah, I mean, this the story always ends with like, you know, they're still doing good things, but it wasn't the same as before. And as much as this is a fucking corporate shell for an independent label that's no longer independent, you know, it's 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 not necessarily a, uh, it's not it, it, it's not endeavor to shit on other labels. It's to understand the kind of nuances, like you were saying, like the say the say the European presence, like some bands, just some reason there was a cyclical nature at which Roadrunner could churn out output, and everyone could have a relationship with it, and that paid dividends. It's really about reverse engineering that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, you are absolutely right. It, it, it's they still are putting out good shit. I, and in terms of the question of, uh, you know, there any of the bands that are going to reach that height because they bought it on the strength of Nickelback and Slipknot, right? They must have done. That has to be. Those are the two golden gooses of that label. But I guess Gojira is, you know, the next one. But it's not mm. like they picked up Gojira and they were a new band. They were already Gojira when they picked them up. So yeah, and the industry's changed by this point as well. So you're not going to get. The, the, the rewards of a platinum RIAA platinum record is not going to be the same as it was in 2001. What do you mean? So when Universal bought Roadrunner in the first place, that's what those were the golden geese. It's Nickelback and it's Slipknot. So the money coming in from those records is pure brick and mortar retail. It's a different revenue stream as to when you sign Gojira and you get a platinum record, say in 2021. They're not going to make quite as much money. I could be wrong though. You're, I, you, I think you are wrong. Uh, streaming, dude, streaming. Do, do, there's a reason why everyone's buying up all these catalogs because streaming is forever money. And mm -hmm. if if you own masters and these catalogs are, it's they're kind of evergreen, right? Uh, metalheads, you get a you know the version of you that's 16 and maybe is discovering Gojira and, and Code Orange. We just have a tendency. Our our you know kids are getting a metal and heavy music we want to go back we want to oh uh reba from code orange is wearing a, a fear factory shirt oh i gotta mm. go check out that album um and so the, these catalogs trust me it's uh it it really has expanded and created a lot of different kind of revenue streams and that's why you're seeing all these bands are getting new uh gold and platinum records me a trey who just got a bunch of Ben sevenfold just got a got a bunch and that's just going to keep happening because we've crossed over that other bridge where the people are consuming music now more than ever. And so even though, yes, I see what you're saying, like you're not getting just that pure money, but keep in mind, you're also not having to print CDs. You're not having mm. to ship CDs. You're not having to store CDs. You're not having to mm. pay the person that's at, that sells. So all this other costs are also taken away. So um, I can't listen. Can I speak to directly like, okay, how much profit were they making in 2000 and how much profit they're making now? I don't have all those numbers in front of me, but there's still a lot of money to be made. So, And that's not even mentioning vinyl. I think vinyl obviously balance had its resurgence as well. 
Yeah, I mean, Taylor Swift sold a hundred thousand vinyls of her Evermore album last week. Mm. That's the most anyone has sold a vinyl album since 1991 in one week. That's fucking mad. So vinyl has has come around a lot, and people they, they like it, they want it. I mean, so listen, I mean, there's music industry is in a good space. I don't, artists in particular, obviously we all have our issues and it's not a fair system at all. Mm-hmm. And it's especially for the middle, the middle class musician, the, the, the artist that would sell maybe 30, 40, 50,000 records uh, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. The streaming system is completely unfair to those types of artists because the types of streams they get don't equal what that, money would have made back then that would have substantiated touring and making music videos and all sort of things. So it's, it, I think it definitely like many trends mm-hmm. uh, in, in modern times is just, you know, it's very not advantageous and suboptimal to a middle class. Going off a bit, because I, I do want to keep talking about Roadrunner stuff. What, you touched on something which I want to ask, like, do you, how do you think, Innovation is going to kick in and solve that problem, or do you think it's it's fucked forever for that for that middle echelon of artist? Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, I because listen, I think ultimately, you know, I, I had um, you know, Stebic, the guitar player from Twelve Foot Ninja, on my show because he's been a big uh, kind of act, you know, a vocal, vocally uh, active person about the unfairness of Spotify and some of these streaming systems and how it it works with a band like like 12 foot ninja and my thing is listen i'm like dude you're you're right these systems are unfair but being mad about it isn't really going to do anything because Mm -hmm. we don't you know if you're of a certain level you just don't have much power and if if the kanye's and the taylor swift's and the post malone's aren't going to change it then it's probably not going to change because the system works great for the top artists yeah they they make most of the money, they get most of the plays, and it and it kind of it's a thing that it's a cyclical thing where the bigger you are, the bigger you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it 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 uh and I don't think it's actually completely accurate to if it was in a in a in a record sense. Um so it kind of it feeds itself so that the rich stay rich and get richer. Um so I, I don't really know. I think these trends like okay, we're in a streaming world now. So what's the next thing? Is that a status quo that's going to exist for the next 20, 30, 40 years till the next thing? I, I really don't know. And I, cause I think I feel like I'm always just trying to keep up with the way things are now. Cause right. Mm-hmm. Cause now, right. You, okay. So streaming is a thing, but now you have artists who are trying to break on TikTok, right? So that's a whole new Avenue. Okay. Let me find my content here. Or people are going on Twitch and performing on there and it's, Listen, the the pandemic too has has made a, a big impact in how artists understand uh, how to exist. Or like I was just listening to this interview with uh, Courtney Laplante from uh, Spirit Box, and you know she was talking about how they, you know, they live in this weird island off of uh, Vancouver, right? So they couldn't really play shows, so they just and they're like, yeah, we really couldn't afford to do an album properly, so we just did singles and we just spent our money on that one song and making a cool video. And it eventually worked for them. And it's like, and it's almost for me, like a little light bulb moment. Where I'm like, oh, see, look, seeing the way the pandemic happened and people weren't touring and you have a band like this. I'm like, maybe that, that those days of just getting in a van and grinding out for a couple of years 
maybe that's kind of stupid. Maybe you don't have to do that unless you really want to. There's like nothing wrong with that's what you really want to do. But or maybe making albums like tradition. Let's go make a full length and maybe just do a song at a time. I mean, I don't know. It's just the the circumstances on the ground kind of dictate how artists will figure that out. And new artists will always be the ones to figure it out. It's not going to be someone like me. It's going to be some 18 year old kid uh, because they, they understand the newer technology better than, than the older generations. And it's always going to be evolving. They're going to be ahead of the curve. So yeah, I think oh, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say is it kind of speaks to what you were saying before. It's totally temporary iPhone is 14 years old, only 14 years old, but it feels like it's been here our entire lives. You know, it's, it's, and then you think of someone like Matt Hafey and it's, and you think, all right, well, you know what? I pay my 25 quid a year for an Iron Maiden fan club uh, membership. My Hafey's breaking in, must be about 60 quid a year if you, if you sub to his Twitch at five quid a month. Completely different model, more money. It's a different, it's, it, like I say, it's just keeping savvy, isn't it? Yeah, and same thing. He was ahead of the curve on that with regard to metal musicians and was doing it, you know, and yeah. And as like he's you know, only, only a few years younger than me, but he is he's just on, on that wavelength and he's and he's capitalized off it. So and that's how you have to be. I mean, you if you sitting around complaining, like there's nothing that pissed me off was I look on Blabbermouth and I see some rocker who made millions of dollars, mind you, for decades and is now bitching because of streaming or downloading. I'm like, dude, you were the one that got all the spoils. Yeah. You should be the last one. Compl- it's like, oh, you, you're making $10 million a year for 30 years, and then now you're making $2 million a year, and now you're mad. And it's like, and or this idea that shaming consumers is going to have any impact. One thing I've learned in the last five, six years is that shaming anyone doesn't really work. It just makes them actually piss them off and what makes them want to do the opposite. Uh, so you have to ingratiate consumers to, 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 to your side instead of just, Hey, I'm going to make people feel bad. And then that'll make them want to buy my album more. Probably not. Yeah, man. It's, I, I refer to this time as the, the post last Jedi world where you go, here's the zeitgeist of communication and, and commentary. And now you go, and here is the valuable stuff. And the rest of it is, it doesn't matter if it makes you feel good or bad, it's low value and it's not going to work for me. Whereas all the uh, the good stuff is here and it's just finding it is really difficult. But yeah, it's, it, shaming is ne- shaming's never works. And I think now we're at a point where we're fast tracking our way for it being imprinted in our minds as to what good and bad dialogue is. Well, but, 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 but look at that. It didn't, and so a lot of people, I've heard this, like, oh, Lars was right. I'm like, well, yeah, he was right about the idea that, yes, they were being ripped off and, you know, it, was, it wasn't fair. And, and he was right about that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but just picking on Napster or, go, or suing people who download music missed the point. It's yeah. the, 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 real, the real point of it is that if – you know, and I, and I say this with the downloading thing. I'm like, downloading is not stealing, it's copying, right? I'm like, you got a sandwich and I take your sandwich. Now you're hungry, you don't have a sandwich. That's stealing. If I see your sandwich and I can copy it and I get an exact version of your sandwich and we're both eating, is that stealing? Yeah. No, it's copy, so it's something different. Um, now, does that 
of course, does that act affect the sandwich shop? Now that, that yeah, they're, they're selling less sandwiches because I figured out a way, but that's human nature. If people have a way to get something free that's not that's like non-invasive and it's easy for them, and it's just like someone's given to if there's someone just giving away free hamburgers down here, then you're gonna get a hamburger. That's just human nature. So you have to kind of work with human nature to go, okay, this thing is gonna happen whether we want it to or not. And the people who got ahead of it, you know, they're they're understanding that. Dude, I mean, I, I read this article uh, interview with Rick Rubin years ago, and he predicted, he's like streaming, he's like, that's what it's going to be. People are going to pay a subscription, and that's how they're going to listen to music. And this is 10 years before it became the the the, the standard. And he's, uh, this is, you know, he's not a young, young guy, but he understood it. Uh, that these things are just constantly changing and you've got to roll with the punches or else you're going to be behind the curve. And Brian, yeah. Brian, by the way, all these artists that complained about it, if they're recouped, dude, they're seeing probably really good royalty checks because of the streaming. So, yeah. and I get maybe, maybe it's less than it was with, with regular albums. And I get that. Uh, but it, it's just, it is what it is. It's so interesting because when we talk about the piracy era, when I try and relate it back to Roadrunner, it's, it, I've always asked, like, did it impact Roger in a negative way? And it's like, it's really difficult because that era, say the just post-2000, post was Nickelback and Slipknot. So the profit and loss sheets, that's when they started really going up. So it's hard to go, oh, piracy had this impact because they were doing so fucking well. Keep in mind, piracy didn't really start affecting the metal community until around 2007, 2008. Because even when uh, people were downloading a lot, the metal fans are really a, were really attached to physical, mm-hmm. and that was a part of the culture and the the kind of consumer process and something that they valued. So yeah. it hit other areas like pop first because those consumers are they're not as connected uh, and they're not as loyal. But so I think it was a, a a good three or four gap between it really started affecting. That's interesting. I should probably bear that in mind from now on when I try and make that analysis. But it's, dude, it's the same reason why Gojira had the number one album in America for records sold because the that consumer, the metal consumer, still wants to buy the record more so than a casual music fan of another genre. I'm not yeah. saying it's not so much that they're you know. Metal albums are selling millions and millions of physical copies, but it's enough to make an impact. Mm. Yeah, it's, like it's me, a- I, I, if I want to support a band, I could just listen. To, I I pay for Apple Music and Spotify, but I will still buy the album. But it's almost like signing up to a Patreon or something. I'm just like, it's like a donation now. Yeah, you're just doing it because you you want you know. And I don't care about physical. I don't I don't want to have CDs or any of that. But I'll still go to iTunes and buy the album just to like vote with my dollar and say, Hey, I want this band or I want, sometimes I'll do it. Cause I want that band to chart higher. I don't know why I care about that, but I do. No, I'm, I'm with you. I bought some um, evals, Helen Leash the other week. I did my fucking bit. I also bought a reissue of, I get wet from Andrew WK. Andrew WK so, you know, my priorities are somewhere, uh, off East. Yeah, man. Um, kicking it back to Roadrunner just cause I'm, I'm trying to appeal to your nostalgia a little bit. Sure. The label itself goes through many eras. There's, say, the 80s where they're getting their foot uh, in the door with Merciful Fate and um, 
the Monty Connors introductory years where he's making Florida death metal happen and then the nineties, as we know, do you have a favorite era? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's definitely, I mean, I, I would say mid nineties, but it really is from early nineties to late nineties. I mean, that's, you know, it starts with me, like the modern era, it starts with chaos AD. Yeah. And, uh, then it's burn my eyes, demanufacture, um, River Runs Red, you know, the uh, the Vision of Disorder, self-titled, Slipknot, self-titled. I'm sure I'm forgetting something in there. I mean, it's weird, like, and Typo, it's weird because I... Bloody I, Kisses, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen to their, their records, but I almost don't associate them with a particular record. I, I just always, like, listen to their songs kind of here and there. Um, but such an Im- Im- impactful and important band. Um, and then... And then you know, kind of going to two thousands, it's it that's the shift to me is when they sign Killswitch, Chimera, El Nino, Glassjaw, and that's like kind of the next phase. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that era was the most impactful. Where it was like, you know, if it wasn't Pantera or White Zombie in the mid nineties, it was one of those bands where you're like, man, this is this is what. The, the new metal, I guess you could kind of call it groove metal or I don't know what, you know, the exact title, but there was a, there's a perception that metal died in the nineties, right? It's like Nirvana came out and metal disappeared. I'm like, dude, that's what I was getting into metal. And so it's like, to me, that's when it got cool. That was like, to me, it's like the nineties, that's when it stopped being cheesy. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense because I was never a hair, hair metal guy or even stuff like Maiden and Judas Priest. Like I kind of got into that later. When I was younger, it sounded too old school to me. It just didn't. Right. It did. It didn't resonate with, with me, and I, I learned to appreciate it uh, later in life. But that's what I associated. Rodan was like, "Oh, this is the new school," and it was, you know, and a lot of those bands, you know, it's like Fear Factory took death metal and did something different with it. Uh, Machine Head took thrash and some hardcore and did something different with it. I mean, Life of Agony. I mean, to me, still sounded like nothing else in the world like just <laughs> combining it's like led zeppelin but it has like a biohazard part and then you know it's just it's it's just really mind-blowing you know and and you know people kind of forget too you know they 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 signed a bunch of hardcore bands around the time they signed earth crisis they signed Madball, um and that really uplifted that scene you know um so that's that's probably my my favorite era uh and i think the one that is most impactful, you know, and even like I said, I, I really like Nickelback. Like that's one of the bands I like a lot of people like to like to shit on, but, but, it, but it's funny. I never got like, listen to the albums per se. I would just like hear the songs on the radio and I know kind of the, kind of the, the, the big songs, but in a weird way, I never associate them with Roadrunner because they mm-hmm. always seem to be adjacent to this crazy metal thing. Like they were just their own Island of, of, of kind of super success. You know that you know because they didn't. They also had Theory of the Dead Man, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think. Do they really? They didn't really have that many other kind of like mainstream rock. They did towards the end. This is the Berman era. This is Ron Berman kicking in, in late '90s. Actually, started at the same time as Gitter. He signs Nickelback, and that's just knocked out of the park. It's weirdly anomalous, but um, Theory Dead Man. But to hit that stride, Blackstone Cherry. Okay, yeah, but they were. Gone. But- I feel like they were Blackstone Cherry was more successful in Europe and UK 
than they were in okay. America. As far as I know, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I know they, I think they do okay here. And same thing with Airborne, where it's like, I would see them doing stuff, but it didn't seem like they really like took hold uh, in terms of getting a, a ton of success in the States, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously I can speak from the UK experience and you can speak from the US experience. Airborne was in the ACDC dark age, wasn't it? Where we didn't know after Stiff Up a Lip if they were going to do another album again. And then a year after Airborne comes out, Black Ice came out. So it was like, oh, great, we've got a new Australian pub rock band and the legacy Australian pub rock band. It was a little too close for comfort for me. I was like, eh, it's a little too on the nose. Um, and I remember that was like around the time The Darkness came out and... The darkness I thought was amazing because it, even though you could say, oh, it's a little bit of Queen, it's a little bit of this, but it didn't, in its package, it didn't sound like any one band. I just thought it was great. I'm weird with the darkness. I think like latter day darkness is better than permission to land darkness. Yeah, I got, here's the thing, haven't listened to it. I got to go, when I get off this call, I got to go check out some some latter day darkness dude i'll send you the link to like that what i consider like the pinnacle I, I like it when bands do that though when they explode i think dragon force is a good example of this you have like this really poignant moment with the wider scene and everyone's heard of your band even outside of like the metal community and then after a few records it's not a downturn it's not a uh the missing the beat it's the audience has consolidated itself and now they know exactly what their metabolic rate is. And that's what you have to measure your success on. Like yeah. through the fire and flames, obviously with guitar hero was huge thing. And now they're still selling out like the bigger end clubs in the UK still, some, I don't they're not headlining any arenas anywhere, but they're definitely playing arenas. I can't yeah, no, I, um, in, uh, in LA with Symph was it symphony X. I saw them with, yeah, with Symphony X, man. And they, uh, Packed place, they killed it. Yeah, I mean, but I, it's it's funny because I actually forgot Dragon Force is on on Roadrunner, and that's but again that they're very anomalous when it comes to the actual quote unquote the prototypical sound of of that. But outside of maybe Sabaton, that was the the biggest moment for power metal ever, maybe. It's it's so in interesting because I was speaking to someone about this, and in the UK for me. There was a Metal Hammer promo CD called Battle Metal. And it, ha it opened up with Painkiller, as you meant to, <clears throat> kicked into Cheery's ass. And then it had Fury of the Storm by Dragon Force. And that, to me, was when Dragon Force broke at the end of that Sonic Firestorm album. But in the States, it was all Guitar Hero. Yeah. And obviously, that bled over into the UK for Inhuman Rampage. But for like for about a year, I think it was all about this weird power metal, uh, this battle metal aesthetic. And that sent me down a path I never really came back from until recently. When I'm listening to all the European folk metal bands and going to Vacuum with a, a drinking horn and all that, it was a completely different thing. And it's probably most the most departed from Roadrunner in terms of taste that I've ever fucking been. You just woke up, you were in, you'd been in a forest for a few years, you had a. Uh you know, sacrificed animals and like pagan rituals. You're like, what? A couple years past, you're like, oh, I'm in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're smoking apples. <laughs> we're doing all sorts. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It was, it was like whacking in those days as well was fucking insane. It was, it was, that's when Amonamath had a Viking fight, like a battle reenactment as part of their show. Wow. Yeah, that's it good. was 2006. It was insane. I need, I need to try and find that footage because that, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I have war paint on, but I'm 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 not going to war. Just it's just a mosh pit, but close enough. Yeah, <laughs> it, 
I, but just to get back to the, the question, the uh, the nineties period that you refer to is interesting because I'm as I'm discovering this in sort in sort of like a more academic sense as to like the choices that were made. Why did they back typo and bloody kiss it to get the gold to get the viability as a label? Why did you know? Why was their faith put in? Uh, Dino in Fear Factory. I'm, I'm trying to unpack all that stuff. And I I really understand why that was the golden era, even though I was front row at that first Trivium headlining gig in Leeds in 2005, not the one that you were on, the one before. Um, so I'm really nostalgic for it, but I really, I kind of, the story of the 90s for Roadrunner is the story of that. It is viability in a time which was perceived to be dead for metal. And I think that's why it's it's so compelling to me as a narrative. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, and I, I feel like we haven't I haven't talked enough about Sepultura, enough about Soulfly, and how huge that that was because you had I think Roots and Chaos ID went gold. I think the first Soulfly album went gold. Um, you know, Cold State around the same time, Cold Chamber that first album went, went gold, uh, and so they were really just on the forefront of all these different, whether it was that groove metal thing that was happening, which bled into new metal and then into the, the metal core thing at all. They were, they were just ahead of the curve on, on everything and, and everything just seemed to just take off, you know, and there was, yeah. and there's even cer certain bands that, you know, like uh, I always wished would have gotten bigger or stuck around like a band like um, 5.0, was a, was a, a band I, that that record I still I still listen to it um, yeah. and I, I wanted to see where where, where they were going to go and and around that time that's when Rodon was really developing bands right like so maybe you put out a record look at Camira right it didn't they were out there they were touring they did some really cool things but it didn't really happen until that second record right until yeah. impossibility of 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 reason so uh it was kind of cool to see that development. And then sometimes you have certain bands like, ah, they just didn't, ah, they didn't get to that next thing, you know, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, it's something I've always been fascinated with and much like you, right. Cause I've had so many artists and A&R people on my show that were involved with, with Roadrunner. And it's something that history is something I'm fascinated with. I mean, the, the uh, Roadrunner United album, for example, is one of my favorite yeah metal albums period i think the whole project of it is a little bit of a miracle and the fact that it turned out so well yeah. is it's just it's just, it's extremely Im impressive and that's and i think like nuclear blast tried to do something like that like a couple years after and it was just kind of you know forgettable and the fact that they did something like that that to this day like i listened to that song with howard and and rob flynn was like fuck like how did i never get like this that this needs to be in the machine head set like how is this yeah, not yeah. Oh, it's too good. Um, and I then, know there's uh, like another mix of the end. There's another mix that Colin Richardson did, which didn't make the album. And because I know that now, I want to hear it. Desperate. He didn't mix it. Who mixed it? Was that Sneak? Uh, it might. It might have been. I know it was. I know Colin did a lot of the, of that record, but the end was one of the mixes that was um, shuffled out for something else. Yeah. I'm just curious as fuck now. Because more <laughs> because as, for a song that I'm like I, re I resonate with a lot just because it was of that time and it was of that that project and I know it in and out I can't conceive of hearing it differently but there's some there's a there's an MP3 out there that sounds different to the one that I know and I want to hear it. Well, I don't know. I mean, someone's got it right. Call Mike Gitter. Ask him. Yeah, I'll give him a nudge.
I'm, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you one more question, and I don't know if I did send these questions a few days ago, but there's no obligation to do any prep because it's more of a meander. If I'm if I'm talking to like roadrunner people, it's kind of A to B because there's there's an arc to their career um, with roadrunner. But for yourself, it's like an observational meandering piece, where we can just talk about you know shit. But do you have a top five roadrunner albums or LPs? I think I've kind of mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, I think I've mentioned all of them on here, but I did think about it. So I, I, it's probably Sepultura, KSAD, mm-hmm. Machine Head, Burn My Eyes, Fear Factory, Demanufacture, um, Slipknot, Self-Titled, Gla- uh, actually, no, hold on. Actually, I got to redo this. I, th- I think Slipknot doesn't make the cut. Actually, oh, no. it's Glassjaw, Warship, and Tribute, Kill Switch, Engage, Alive or Just Breathing. Yeah. I think that's the five. And I think Slipknot's right there. I mean, there's... A bunch more. Oh, but yeah. yeah. I think Slipknot just, just missed the cut. I'm sorry, Slipknot. Honorable mention, if anything. I mean, quite quite an honorable mention. Not that they need my uh, v- validation. <laughs> but there's, but there's, there's so many. There's so many records. I mean, like I said, uh, River Runs Red, Impossibility of Reason, Ascendancy. Um, I mean, there's so many. I mean, I, I mean, I. Arise, I mean, it's right there with, uh, you know, Chaos ID for for me. Um, yeah, there's just there's, I mean, so many. And some some records I almost for, like I said I forget that they're on Roadrunner. It's like, do I have to Ghost Reveries? Do I got to put that on there? Is that above uh, Manufacturer? I don't know. It's right. It's definitely right, right there. And then then I think about Gojira. I'm like, oh shit, does Gojira need to be on there? Almost because I almost perceive stuff past a certain point as not being Roadrunner, but mm-hmm. it is. So I, I guess I'm the, I guess these are my sen- sentimental favorites. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. Well, um, well, thank you very much for your time. I'm gonna I'm going to close out with something I meant to open with, but we just kind of hit the fucking ground running with it. So I just wanted to congratulate you on this week because the the announcement of, of DL was like, oh, this is unconventional. It's high production value, and this is the message I get from it. All oh, right, <laughs> it's been an unclear few months, but the momentum is. Not is it? It's not trundling forward. It's been forward, and it's on me as a as a listener and a viewer to catch up and be get on the train, get on the fucking train. It's all going. Why do you put it that way? Because it normally, especially in like post pan, I'm gonna call it post pandemic because post pandemic plans are being made. It's mm-hmm. kind of drip fed. Oh, here's a tour, and here's a tour poster. Oh, yeah. here's an album cycle, and here's this with with you guys. It was like. Here's effectively a trailer demonstrating that we've been busy and that we're going to come out of the gate. And I thought well, it was just, it was just refreshing. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, 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 it's hard to express how difficult it is to be really working hard on something and not be able to say anything because, you know, at a certain point we stopped even going on the bad world social media because every time we would post anything, people would be like, do you have a singer yet? And you could tell the tone of it was, I don't care what you're talking about until you have a singer because we, it almost the, the vibe was, we don't believe you have a singer. We feel like, we, like they almost thought we were just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, but we, you know, from the, the day that it was announced that Tommy was not going to be in the band, we just, we just started grinding and working and we, and a month before that we were working on an album as well. Um, so it was just, yeah, it was a lot of work, you know, finding a singer, 
finishing songs, writing new songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were just going, 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 going. And listen, it's the, the background behind that, even currently, is tumultuous and crazy. And there's all these things, legal stuff that's a lot of stuff that's out of our out of our hands and frustrating and kind of uh, I don't know. It's and we we've been essentially counseled to just not say anything, <laughs> uh, which is really tough. Uh, so so listen, I'm I'm glad we got that info out. I'm glad we you know, DL so talented and I've I know how good the songs are. I know how good he sounds. So it's like. I have like a hundred percent confidence that once people hear it, they will like it. Of course, there's going to be some people that are just going to be on principle. They're, they're not going to be into it. And that's of course their prerogative, but it's just, for me, it's just getting to that point where music is out and albums out and we, and people can at least judge it for what it is and not on speculation or prejudice, you know? Yeah. I mean, f- for me, maybe it's cause I'm, I'm, I'm an older man now but I value certainty over anything else. You know what I mean? So when the information is hitting me in the face of this is happening, these are the circumstances, this is the resolution to the either tumultuous or the uncertainty, I'm like, ah, great. I no longer have to dedicate any bandwidth to speculating. Everything is now <laughs> out, out in the open. Yeah, well, every, well, Unfortunately, a lot of that stuff, there's there's still some uncertainty, I think, sure. uh, with at least telling our story. Um, so hopefully that'll be out there at, at some point. But it's a, unfortunately, it's a, our situation is it's an ugly saga that I don't know. If it was up to me, it would just be like over and we could just focus on music and all that, all that good stuff. So it's, um, I don't know. I'm. There's so much I wish I could say and I can't say. I'm, it's I'm, cool. Don't. I'm not trying to drag anything out. To me, to me, it's I'm keeping it surface level. Exactly what your PR person wants me to know, which is new singer shit's happening. Let's just go, boys, because that's what it's all about. No, things have been going, but I, but I think in this era, you know, so many people, especially in the last, you talk about the last year, year and a half, where the only way people do connect to an artist is through. The music or a music video or a live stream and though in a, in a way the songs have more value now than ever before yeah. right like you're only as good as the music right so all that other shit is kind of like whatever so it'll just be nice to have have that out so i'm I, like we're still getting mixes back so i think right now only two songs are fully mixed and then our, our producer like he had another band is was like we're just like come on hurry up shit and then we were working on we like finished the album and then the label wanted a couple more another song so we like wrote some more songs so it's like this it's like saying we think you're done and you got to work a little more and we have to you know so i think you can't really plan a release date until you like your album is mastered and it's mm. like it's done, turn it in and like that's the album and then you can like do everything so uh and with this situation we were kind of our hand was forced uh because our who our singer was, was, was leaked uh, by somebody. And so we felt some pressure to get, at least get ahead of that and just say, Hey, let's, you know, fuck the, fuck the speculation. Let's just, let's just get, get out here with it and say, this is the guy we're, we're going with. And so, yeah, so it's exciting. Yeah. Cracking on with it. Now we wait. On bated breath. 
Let's just okay. watch the Bad Batch until we're fucking until we're there, boys. I'm a few episodes. I think I'm like three episodes behind. I gotta go. I gotta catch up. I've not. Had, I've, I've not had time, man. I've, I've not had time. Oh, um, by the way, uh, Bring Me the Horizon was on Epitaph a few years ago. Now they're RCA. See, I didn't fuck up. Want <laughs> to edit that out? No, I'll keep this bit in. It's fine. <laughs> All right, dude. I'm gonna let you go. Thanks very much for doing this. Good. I'll keep it posted as we go.